Hello, I'm Tom Ferguson, and welcome to The Fundamental Molecule. This show explores the intersection of water, technology, and entrepreneurship. Each week, I interview innovators, experts, entrepreneurs, and investors in the world of water, helping us understand where this trillion-dollar industry is headed. These are the stories of the people building the future of the world's most valuable and fundamental resource. Disclaimer. Tom Ferguson is the managing partner of Bird Island Ventures. All opinions expressed by Tom and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Burton Island Ventures. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It's always so fun seeing great companies being built for the right reasons. Bessie Schwartz, CEO of Floodbase, has been on a mission to help the world's most vulnerable people since her early 20s. Her company is not only the flood monitoring partner of FEMA and the United Nations, she's also building a quiet and sometimes not so quiet revolution in the insurance industry, helping to build parametric flood insurance, which is an idea that's been long mooted, but not feasible until now, to reality. Their announcement last year alongside one of the world's leading reinsurers of the provision of parametric flood insurance for the rural farmers of Colombia was a world first. And alongside her wildly cool co-founder, Beth, they are building a company with enormous impact and commercial potential. Plus, Bessie's awesome. Please enjoy my conversation with Bessie Schwartz. Bessie, welcome. Always a massive pleasure to see you. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Well, welcome to The Fundamental Molecule. You know, as we start with all of these conversations, it's super important for everybody listening to have context on on what you're up to. So why don't you just walk us through your your sort of high-level story in water? Well, it's great to be here. It's always good to talk to Tom Ferguson. <laughs> um, so I'm the co-founder, CEO of Cloud to Street. Cloud to Street is a advanced flood tracking system that uses all observations in order to monitor floods as they're happening on any day anywhere in the world and go back in time to understand flood risk as it's changing without any ground equipment. This technology that my co-founder and I invented is a fundamentally different way of understanding flood risk on Earth that's today powering insurance for people who've never had access to it and search and rescue and other forms of protection by governments and other institutions. So in water, if we take a step back, I've worked on climate change my entire career. It is the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. And quick onset disasters are really the tip of the spear of how we're going to experience this crisis. Whether you live in Barbados, and I hope to talk about some of those solutions that they're implementing, or here in New York, where I'm from. Flooding is 50% or more of all disasters total. You can stack fire, you can stack earthquakes, landslides on top of each other, and you will not equal the amount of people and the amount of economy exposed to a disaster. So this is where I come into the water issue. It's clear that we, if we're going to survive climate change, we've got to survive this part of the water crisis. I really came to that kind of backwards from a real, from a personal experience of working on it. And what was that? This is what directly led you to starting it. So I've worked on climate change my entire career, as I was saying, and I've mostly worked on it through policy 
in the US and had realized over that time, which was like too long for me to work on this for longer than I you know, want to admit at this point, it was very clear when I started my career that <laughs> it didn't really matter how much the science was building up and creating the real arguments that we needed to adapt and change to accommodate for climate change. Communities and economies were not actually getting the funding or the policy that they needed. So I went back to grad school at Yale, where I met my co-founder, and we were looking for new ways to use science and technology in order to create more equitable access to information around climate disasters and climate change. And it is not a far step to head to flooding as the first one that you're going to start with when you go from that perspective. So that was your your prism in. And can you walk us through just a little bit of the process that you and Beth went through at the beginning of your relationship that set you on the path with Cloud Street? So a couple of things happened. I'd say it was both like any real like company that has a massive scale opportunity. It was both a massive problem that led us to addressing this, first starting from a kind of the moral impetus of climate change and the market gap, but also the opportunity. So technology was catching up to where the need was between satellite revolution, cloud computing, the computer vision revolution. So as I mentioned, Beth and I met at Yale, literally day one of orientation. We became roommates and have not stopped trying to solve problems with new forms of technology equitably around the world since then. Google came to Yale, I think just in the beginning of our second semester, and basically presented a early version of now or can think a revolutionary product they had where they basically took decades of free NASA data, satellite pictures that NASA public satellites have been taking of the Earth for decades at this point, and just threw them on Google computers, Google servers, and then broke open what was possible in terms of planetary scale computing. They were coming actually to try to get Yale professors to write papers on it. But Beth and I immediately saw that a different way was possible in terms of analyzing disasters from the sky, from the cloud down, rather than from the street up, which is how the traditional flood mapping we were learning in school was being taught. So fundamentally different, doesn't require any ground equipment, but instead leverages all the images being taken up the earth all the time. So basically we just start, we taught ourselves to code actually way back in order to build an initial algorithm that harnessed this specifically for flood mapping and flood risk. Google got wind of it while we were developing it out, flew us out to Mountain View. We were presenting the early version of the Cloud Street algorithm, and they essentially saw what we saw, that this way of looking at flooding, analyzing flooding in a more dynamic way through observations could be the future of how we think about, analyze, respond to climate disasters. So they basically started funding us to work on the research way back in the day, and really proud that actually a parts of that research and our collaboration with Google ended up being the cover of Nature about a year and a half ago for this type of science way of looking at flooding being a fundamentally different type of subfield within hydrology. Being on the cover of Nature, for those of you who aren't aware of this, is a very big deal. <laughs> capital V, capital B, capital D. Um, not many people are going to experience it. And obviously, it was a huge you know, testimonial to the quality of your work. How did that come about and what has the impact been? Yeah, I mean, all the credit really goes to, first of all, my co-founder, Beth Tellman, and my founding partner, Colin Doyle, who really led a lot of that work. We have been working on that science for many years. 
behind cloud to street of taking mass amount of satellite imagery we have now to just observe what's happening and then turning that into usable information. And in many ways, we were doing that just to serve the customers who were coming to us, both insurance companies and governments who, frankly, had no other options for using more traditional mapping. Either flood risk was changing too fast where they were living or their country never had reliable ground equipment enough to analyze or map floods as they were happening. So we were just working on that problem and super focused on that. We couldn't use the traditional methods. And yeah, I guess along the way, we were just first just coding in our pajamas together and working on this. And Beth and Colin, who are like true scientists at the core, realized that this was big enough. And, you know, we had many great professor and academic advisors along the way who were realizing what we were doing actually was fundamentally different and new on the scale of, I have to say, the most impactful scientific journal on Earth. So I guess just kind of follow the problem and be rigorous about it. <laughs> That's exceptional. So you're now the UN's flood monitoring partner. Can you just sort of walk us through the practicality of how that works? I mean, I, the, um, one example might be the Zimbabwe floods of a few years ago, but just in a kind of really practical basis, how does your work with countries manifest itself? So our primary users today are global insurers, reinsurers, and brokers, but we really got our start by working in the public sector as with disaster management and search and rescue. Back right, sort of right after we went out to Mountain View and started building out the technology, the World Bank basically approached us and said, hey, could we use this to start getting a sense of risk in places where it's going to take us a year or even multiple years in order to build up new flood monitoring systems in that location? So we'd been doing that, starting with the World Bank, for governments around the world when the UN essentially found us and had that same need. The first real use case we had for the UN was in actually the Congo, where we've been working in Zimbabwe now, I believe, two, two years or so with the UN. But back in 2017, before we had been, a flood hit the northern part of the Congo. And despite 5,000 people being stranded without food, the government and the UN didn't know about the flood for about three weeks. And by that, it was a national disaster. Jeez. You'd think this would be isolated to the Congo or the developing world, but there's we get these kinds of questions from developing country governments as well, where they just don't have enough data to really get a handle on where the flood is being impacted. This was true in Ian as well, even with large and, and rich insurers. But back in the Congo, three weeks to know about a flood that was in a pretty northern part of the country so we were basically contacted to say, could you set up a more advanced system? About a year later, we were monitoring the country every single day, completely remotely, without putting any ground equipment in place and detecting floods basically as soon as they were happening. So over the course of that season, this is back in 2018 now, we had monitored about a dozen, a little bit more than that, floods, pretty minor that had happened when towards the end of the year, about 15,000 refugees moved into the Congo and were in informal camps they had just settled in when basically the government and the UN contacted us to say, we know it's raining. Are these areas going to flood? Are they at high flood risk? And then they used our system basically to identify that the largest camp, which is about 7,000 people, was in a very high risk zone and was in fact, waters were rising. Use that to relocate these people and about 10 months later, a flood during the following grazing season basically wiped out that area with those 
asylum seekers had been living. So that was back in now, like that is very early 2019. And we're going on our fifth year of supporting that country with them being on the assessment. I would say all credit really goes to the government and the UN in that location using it. So it was really that success story back many years ago that other countries within the UN system realized that this was a, in many ways, the most advanced system kind of system. And it was immediately available no matter how much ground equipment you could have very easily. So spread throughout the UN system. And then the HQ essentially then just made us an official partner. So it was easier for countries to get a hold of the platform. That must have felt great. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's those kinds of examples, I have to say, happen all over the world and not just isolated to the developing world. And so it felt really good to have a very concrete and clear example of this impact, but we need to do a lot more. Yeah, for sure. Always, always. So so fast forward to today. I mean, as you mentioned, you're focusing your work on the, the insurers and the reinsurers. Just walk us through kind of that opportunity. Like, where are you now? You mentioned Hurricane Ian. Like, just let us know where you are now. To start at the top, as I mentioned, floods are the biggest disaster of all. But about 70% of all flood losses around the world are uninsured. Summer is even higher in the uh, developing world, as high as uh, 90%. This number has stayed relatively stable despite the growing need, despite the massive increase in floods and flood losses. So it's quite clear that the traditional tools, the traditional way of doing flood insurance just isn't up for the challenge of increased impacts from disasters in the face of climate change. And so insurers are using our technology to enable a new form of insurance, which triggers payouts and can cover people anywhere in the world without having a local field appraiser, someone with a clipboard, going to your door. This suddenly breaks open the parts of the world and the types of risk, like business interruption or debt relief, that are possible for us to transfer. This is essentially what insurers are doing on the technology. And it's, I think, creating a really exciting new sets of products from agricultural loan debt relief in vulnerable countries to entire countries getting sovereign debt relief. So this is some of the work that's being pioneered in Barbados right now to just regular old property flood insurance or corporate flood insurance that we're just going to see a lot more of disrupting the economy. How have you structured going after the insurance market? Because I used to work in insurance land in London. I mean, it's a fairly esoteric beast and it's quite different from, you know, you'll start with Google, going through the World Bank into the UN, you know, working with the DRC, you know, all the rest of it. And then you find some great, you know, I'm sort of thinking Lloyds of London, kind of red braces and kind of like red cordial trousers and all this kind of business. I'm sure it's not like that, but. It's not, not like that. So I would say maybe two things. One, they came to us. So maybe I'll say three things. So they came to us. So we were monitoring. Today, I think we're doing about 400 million people are being monitored by primarily public sector organizations in our platform, meaning they're tracking whether or not someone is impacted by a flood on any given day or while in their in their rainy season. So because we have such high quality data around the world, that is clearly being relied on by governments to protect their citizenry in some of the most fundamental ways they need to, governments were like, oh, sweet, they've got the data we need in places we just haven't been able to underwrite it or for types of risk like whole country disruption or whole state, all of Florida being disrupted from Ian, 
great, we'd love to use this. And so they came to us. At the same time, we have been working with national governments around the world who would consistently say to us, wonderful, now we've got the data to take all of this action around climate adaptation or emergency response, but with what extra money do you expect me to go do this, whether I'm a rich country or I'm a, a poorer country? So at this point, just sort of putting two and two together ensures you want to offer this type of financing and governments who need it to protect themselves and their, their citizenry. So that was the first thing. That's sort of, they came to us to present the problem. The second thing I'll say is, I sort of, you joked about how it's kind of somewhat stodgy and old, the stereotype of an insurer is, but it, Advice to a, to a startup, especially one that is trying to go after a more old school, but still like disruptable, quote unquote, industry is like not to change in some ways who they think they are fundamentally as you enter it. Clearly, you're going to be changing something fundamental about what they do. We are getting them to do a fundamentally different type of insurance, one that pays out of a satellite image or multiple satellite types of satellite sensors rather than a person with a clipboard. Very different. But they work at their own pace. They have their own language. They meet in their places. They have to have certain types of accuracy assessments. They have to use brokers. Like, just do not, recommendation to all insurtechs, like, do not try to cut out brokers. Many have tried and basically all have failed. Stay key. Yeah. If you can kind of respect how it is they go about it. Like, so why the status quo exists in certain ways and then try to only change the parts of it that you really want to change to get your product widespread adoption within the industry. I think that is not just good advice. I think it's the only way to really do it. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of tourism, isn't it? Like, it's really important to <laughs> to want to kind of change the world, but it's quite important to you to do that via, at least initially via the apparatus that's already available to you. I think it's obviously great to have, to tilt at a particularly big windmill, but it's very, very useful if you're going to try and change the game to play by the rules of it initially. So I just want to change uh, speeds a little bit, because I think one of the things that sets you apart from a lot of other water founders is that you are working with, I mean, I think all investors have their benefits, well, some don't, <laughs> but you have some really kind of interesting top tier investors involved, including Lower Carbon Capital and the Collaborative Fund and, and in various others. So what do you think led them to choose you versus some other potential destinations of capital? Yeah, I think climate change or climate disruption is so obviously going to change every level of society and the economy that makes for just massive opportunities. And so being within this sector and this kind of subsector of the water sector, however you want to see it, like sticking within that fundamentally and being very clear, our theory of change within that was maybe one of the first really um, distinguishing things. I'd say, but then two other things is one, our particular focus in flooding and then creating a new type of insurance was, I think, really compelling. And the amount we had just consistently stuck to that and clearly had something unique to contribute technically and from a product go to market perspective, I think was different as well. And then the last thing I'll say is our investors were pretty clear with us that they had been concerned prior to talking to us about insurance as a solution to climate change. And listen, mm -hmm. I get it. I mean, this is two years ago or so that we raised our seed fund. Super proud you guys were involved in. 
Yeah, exactly. So they kind of had said, like, isn't this just making money off the problem? Isn't this just sort of taking money from people who are already vulnerable to the problem? And then walking these insurers through just the numbers that entire countries or smaller economies that have some kind of financial safety net after a disaster are likely to recover and keep on the growth path that they were on previously, as opposed to ones that don't have a robust insurance market in that country, in that location, generally fall back up to like 10 to 20 years or so. This is data by Munich So I think really walking through how fundamental insurance, adding this level of insurance and financial protection is to solving the climate crisis and therefore is a part of creating an economy that's resilient to this massive disruption we're experiencing now, I think helped them really see the path that Cloud Street was going to be on, both from a impact perspective and then clearly from a you know, creating a multi-billion dollar business. How do you think about the insurability question? I think one of the things that people often you know, think about when you're thinking about, oh, we're having 100-year storm events every three years. At what point does this become uninsurable or does it just become like too expensive in terms of the underwriting? I don't know. I'm not close enough to the actual actuarial process and the, and the pricing of these insurance products. But like, how do you think about that over time? I mean, presumably you change the cost basis of the insurance process. So Yep, definitely. I'm a huge proponent of having risk actually cost what risk should cost. So not, I think subsidizing the cost of insurance for everyone is incredibly detrimental, not to economies over the long term. It incentivizes more economic wealth being built in places that just shouldn't have it. That said, obviously we need to help transition communities that can't afford to get, if they get priced out of the insurance required, either formally required for something like a mortgage in the U.S., or required from just a risk appetite perspective. We have to deal with this issue by helping to relocate communities that just cannot afford the actual cost of risk in the places that they live in. Not an easy solution, but far better to plan the migration of communities that live in places that just can't afford it than to do it in a forced migration method. Especially as you, if you think about it, you know, if a place is becoming more dangerous to live, people that can leave do, and people that can't don't. And so it becomes essentially a, an equity issue as, as well. And anything you can do to alleviate that is sort of fundamentally worth pursuing. That's really interesting. Just to broaden the aperture just a little bit, like how do we think about climate adaptation or resilience or whatever we want to kind of put a name on it in the context of climate tech? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And it's one that I just think has not gotten a ton of play within the huge boon in investments in climate from VCs, from the government, like the new IRA bill or et cetera. And I think that's because folks didn't really know how to wrap their arms around. I'll sort of, in a funny story, when we went out to raise our seed round, we mostly focused on climate investors because we, we really wanted to make sure we align our investors and our theory of change. And we asked every single one at the very beginning, when you say climate tech, do you mean adaptation? And every single one would basically say, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. I guess we do mean that. I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 we do. And so we've gone from that. So it wasn't a barrier, but I wouldn't say in the beginning when raising, at least it was a huge advantage to us. 
that's really changed in the last two years. And I actually think it's continuing to uh, really evolve right now. I think a lot of COP27 was actually had an adaptation theme to it. So I think folks are really trying to starting to understand what adaptation means exactly. But my perspective is that adaptation is way, way more hopeful than other forms of climate tech. We have the tools that we need today in order to adapt to a massive increase in disruption of disasters, of impact. We just need to use them effectively. We need to finance them through new types of financial instruments, including insurance. We need to use more resilient infrastructure, better zoning, like what we were talking about earlier, better policy regulation, in order to just increase the amount of loss that we can absorb while still maintaining our same form of love livelihoods. And it's hopeful because we can do this right now. And it's not dependent on some kind of newfangled, cool technology that we are not totally sure if it's going to exist or go out of the lab to come save us. These are things we could just do now. Yeah, exactly. I always wonder how these things are going to sort of express themselves dynamically. One of the craziest things about 2022, and there were a lot of them, <laughs> but in the context of climate tech, you know, we're now at $60 billion in climate tech that's uninvested. The clock is ticking because all of this has a has an investment period attached to it. That's up from 20 at the end of last year, even with what's been deployed this year. I mean, do you see this almost like one of your floods? Like eventually people are going to kind of be like, wow, carbon removal via XYZ capability and uh, the, the next round of hydrogen and the conveyance and electric vehicles and whatever it is, is that it's just going to find its way in higher quantities towards the slightly more kind of unloved areas of climate tech, whether you call it adaptation or whether it's kind of water overall. Do you see that the percolation is just going to happen because the capital needs somewhere else to be that's less crowded? Or is that wishful thinking? I think the evolution and the interest is coming not just from sort of the supply being higher, but a real understanding of what adaptation is and a real push or maybe a pull from it from the users, whether it's corporations that need to disclose their climate impact or from countries saying we need better financing to do adaptation better than the World Bank can offer now. So I think there's a real hunger and a better general understanding of what the climate adaptation market can be. I don't want to say that these other solutions are not necessary. We need it all. Like We need multiple forms of renewable energy. We definitely need carbon removal to work. I'm a huge fan of a lot of geoengineering done safely. Like These are all parts of getting our planet to cool to levels where we can just maintain human life. But the fact of the matter is I think folks are starting to realize what it means for the planet to warm no matter what. Whether or not we stopped emissions today, the planet would continue to rise for 10 to 20 years. And we've just got to deal with that right now. And I think that just the increased impact of what that means at the governmental level, at the corporate level, at the NGO level, and what that means for the humanitarian crisis around the world, I'd like to say maybe this this is way more hopeful than what you were thinking, Tom, but I actually think that the real value of it, and not just the need from a moral perspective, I mean, like people willing to pay for this stuff and realizing how you make money on these problems is really what's going to inspire a lot of that capital to go towards adaptation and potentially other previously under-prioritized elements of climate tech. Yeah, no question. I mean, one of the fundamental kind of predicates of what we're trying to do is everybody's placing a bet with their time and energy and money and like all the rest of it. But the big thing is that really smart people are finding out about this 
and really smart people are dedicating their time and energy towards the kind of the adaptation resilience side of things is tremendously encouraging. So when you kind of extrapolate that out and you think about kind of the future of disaster resilience and preparedness going into kind of the next 10 years, there's obviously the terrible, terrible possible Mad Max future, which we're hopefully both betting against. But where do you see your market going? What do you think people who are covering this and thinking about this should be thinking about thematically in terms of the key elements of its evolution? For climate tech in general? No, for disaster preparedness and resilience. So keeping it to your kind of, I mean, it's a big niche, but people would call it a niche. The thing that we're most excited about, because it is a just absolute table stakes, is how do we finance this whole thing? In many ways, I see climate change and definitely the adaptation component of it, which is where I think the real game's at in the next 10 years, is a not a physical problem. It's not a political problem. It's not a social individual problem. It's a financial problem. It's how do we get the capital to the places, the projects, the people that need it at the moment that they need it, either whether or not it's to do some form of adaptation, getting everyone to do the elusive preventative work that's always leads to more dollars in the end. One dollar of prevention is worth about four to seven in reduction of loss later, but also matching at the moment of some kind of crisis with actual capital that you need to survive bounce back, whether you're an individual business or a farm or you're an entire country, as we were talking about earlier. I think figuring out more creative ways where we distribute the capital is and distribute it equitably with interest rates that are manageable, with insurance and risk transfer that really balances the risk around the world. So it's going to flood in Nigeria when it's not flooding in the state of Mississippi, and they can be in a pool together within the global economy. So I really think a lot of this is actually a financial problem, and I'm just excited about kind of redirecting the conversation in many ways when going there and creative ways to finance it, rather than continuing to just think that the modes of donating after disasters, like as if that has ever worked, let alone going to work with the increased amount of loss that we have. Very interesting. This is sort of an adage that the money follows the stories. What have you learned about storytelling with your own company that you think is sort of particularly transferable to other people who are doing this? I think the number one thing is just being simple with your story. We live and breathe this water all the time. And I'm constantly saying things that I think are being really clear and really simple. And people say to me, why are you using such technical language? And I'm like, How, what? Well, like, like, I didn't even realize the language I was using felt technical. And so I think just the real practice constantly of trying to reflect on how others are going to hear the language that you're talking about and trying to get kind of out of your own world when talking about why the thing is important or even just what it is, is just so paramount and an ongoing, consistent, like constant practice for a founder or really anybody working in this space. Oh my God, that's so unbelievably true. It just happened to me earlier today. I know, it's all the time. It's absolutely amazing. I find myself, I'm like, whoa, okay, I need you. We're going back. We're going back exactly to there. Okay, that's really helpful. I think about the storytelling thing all the time. And it's one of the things that is oddly, I mean, it's one of the five things that we kind of conveniently put out on the kind of website is number five is that the, you know, the storytelling thing is something that we're looking for. I mean, we sort of articulated as a, as a component of charisma, but it really is, it just makes so much difference. One thing that might be quite tempting for you in that area is to go for the fear rather than the hope. 
given that actually what you're trying to attenuate is genuinely quite scary. Have you gravitated towards the hope over time or is the fear still quite useful or has it ever been useful? You have to have a little bit of both. The balance is much more on the hope side. And that's what I think we got wrong in working in climate change for most of the history of it, that I actually think the tech sector, the tech sector is inherently kind of hopeful, like because it's focused on potential, whether or not it's potential backed up by real technology or real companies, you know, that's always a question mark. The communication psychology research actually shows you want something like two doses of fear and five doses of hope. I'm not getting those ratios right. But you have to say, like, this is a problem. There is a reason you should be paying attention to this, a reason why stuff you're doing already as an individual, as a community, like why that is not going to work or headed in the wrong direction. But there's hope and you can do something about it. All of those have to go essentially in the same breath in more doses. And in some ways, that's what I, I really like about adaptation, as I was saying earlier, whereas like to me, the longer term technological solutions, while I'm really excited that some of good friends of mine are working on it, is a bit more of a nihilistic approach to things. It sounds kind of nice because, oh, we don't have to do anything. We'll just invent some great white clouds that will just cool the planet and we have to change it all and keep admitting. To me, that's actually quite scary. While I'm glad folks are working on it, we can make some fundamental changes now that are not going to disrupt your lifestyle all that much, but just financing insurance differently, changing zoning patterns differently. These are, you know, in some ways massive changes, but much more at hand and using the tools we have today. So to me, I don't know, that's pretty hopeful. And I'm excited that we're going to be talking a lot more about adaptation, I think, in the next couple of years for that reason. Absolutely. I think that two doses of fear and five doses of hope is really interesting. It makes me think about leading organizations, because I feel like from the time when you and Beth sort of met each other at Yale and started this, and then it's metastasized into this sort of relatively significant (laughs) organization that really could have like massive global impact. I'm curious as to how that's changed you and how you think about making the kind of the metamorphosis is probably too like woofy a word, but evolving as a leader as the nature of your job changes. Absolutely. I would say that evolving as a leader, in fact, is your number one job as a leader itself. What you have to do to understand an idea, to make a bet on it yourself, to convince other people to join you and get resources to evolve it at each one of these phases, it require different things of you as an individual and someone, even like what leadership is when it's just leading yourself or maybe your friend who you know, you've co-founded the company with to leading a real organization or like trying to do thought leadership. You just have to be fundamentally different at these various stages. And I think anyone who doesn't take that kind of a fairly humble learning approach to the position and know that you're just constantly learning, I don't think we'll get, frankly, that far. Maybe you've got two or three of the skills, but if those two, three skills are mostly, you know, applicable at stage seven, you're not going to, you know, it doesn't really matter yet. Exactly. I was never a gamer growing up, but I always think that actually the logic of computer games is actually incredibly important to company building because you, you got to sort of, well, sometimes you, I guess you can skip from level five to level eight, but in general, you have to kind of go through the processes and you have to kind of eat the mushrooms and go down the tubes and like all the rest of it to be able to advance in the thing. So, I mean, as you maybe going from the team in the company to sort of where you're going next, like what should we expect from you and what we, should we expect from Counter Street in 2023? What's coming? Yeah, I mean, we're incredibly excited about how the what's called the parametric insurance market is shaping up both in the US and internationally. And so 
we're partnering with a lot of really awesome insurance carriers and brokers in order to put out things like hurricane parametric products that include flooding in them. This would change what just happened in Ian in Florida. And when we can have that in the next 2023 season for hurricanes in the U.S., it's really going to, I think, help in some ways save the insurance market, which is in crisis in the U.S. But the other thing we're really excited about is taking this technology and this mode of decision-making, this sort of automatic decision of using a satellite to trigger a financial distribution of money, aka an insurance payout, taking that mode of decision-making to all types of other industries. So we're actually applying parametric insurance methods to the governments that are on our platforms around the world. So they can actually trigger decisions around search and rescue or food aid or other types of work after a disaster in an automated fashion that's much quicker, more equitable, and more scalable. Tremendously exciting. Brilliant. Betty, you've been so kind to spend this time with us. We are all the way through to our final question, which we ask each of the guests on the final mental molecule, which is what one lesson from your entrepreneurial experience would you pass on to any emerging water founder? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pick through the library, Bessie. Pick through the library. Yeah. It's just really so many. And I think this fundamental idea of just kind of constantly be learning and staying humble about whether or not the skills that you have or the ways you found success to get where you are today are not going to apply to the next phase that you're going to. And so fundamentally, just staying curious and interested in what it takes to get you to the next level having a North Star to get there, but being incredibly flexible all the way down to kind of who you need to be, not just kind of as a leader, but in a lot of ways in order to get there is, I think, just really critical. And knowing that ahead of time, I think could make it a lot less kind of going through these evolutions seem less painful and in some ways more exciting at how much you can grow. I cannot tell you how much that's resonating. It reminds me exactly like being a parent. You get used to one stage. And then suddenly it's a whole new stage again. And it's, wait, what, I, all of this stuff I just learned? Yeah, exactly. It's totally irrelevant. This is, this is absurd. Anyway, that message of being a learning machine is such a good one. If you can get good individually and organizationally at discovering, incorporating, and then acting on new information, it's, it's an absolute superpower. Of which you have very many. Bessie, this has been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to see you again soon. Yeah, this was really fun.